I'm delighted to be here and see this beautiful building. My husband and I and Courtney and Jason belonged to the Unitarian Fellowship back in the late 70s. And our children were dedicated there. And so it's a real treat for me to be here and uh, share my journey with you all. My memoir, Unspeakable, A Mother's Journey, is a compilation of my journal entries beginning at the time of my daughter's death on August 27, 2000. I had no intention that I would publish my path of grief until I took part in a service on death and dying in 2003. Several people afterwards encouraged me to publish my journal to help other parents cope with the loss of their children. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was the first to describe the process of grief. Shock, disbelief, guilt, anger, finally acceptance. However, it's been my experience that grief is like a Ferris wheel, going around and around, stopping a while, only to begin again. Today, I'd like to share my journey along my path of the unspeakable. My journey actually began when Courtney Baker was born on a snowy day in Lawrence, Kansas, on January 21, 1972. I had a normal pregnancy full of anticipation and marveling at the many changes uh, going on in my body. Soon after she was born, a problem with Courtney's breathing and color concerned the pediatrician. She was taken to the Kansas University Medical Center and had a procedure to temporarily correct a defect in her heart. She had a 50-50 chance of surviving. Courtney came through with flying colors. The good news was that she was a strong baby. The bad news, she had transposition of the great vessels which meant that her aorta and pulmonary arteries were parallel instead of crossed. We were told she would need open-heart surgery when she was two years or 20 pounds. We were like deer in the headlights. The story was not supposed to go like this. The doctors must have made a mistake in their diagnosis. By summer, Courtney was gaining only a pound and a half every two months. At our appointment in December, the doctors told us that surgery was needed in the next few weeks. Her odds this time were 60-40. She came through the four-hour surgery again with flying colors. The surgeon told us to get out of the hospital, have a nice dinner, and go to a movie. Good advice. When we saw Courtney the next day, she was alert and pink. We were relieved that it was over and we could get on with our lives. 
By January 1974, 10 months later, she had grown, filled out, and looked like a normal two-year-old. In between cardiac checkups, she took piano and dance lessons and learned to swim. After we moved to California, she joined a swim team and played soccer. However, writing stories and acting in school plays were her favorite things to do. Her strength of character, stubbornness, powers of persuasion, and creativity increased as she grew. One day, when she was in fifth grade, she came home from school and told me that they were having seances in school. I didn't think much about it. After all, we were in California. A couple of days later, she came home and said they weren't allowed to have seances anymore. The following weekend, her friends and Courtney came flying into the house. We saw Bloody Mary! We saw Bloody Mary! The girls had been conducting a seance, or rather, Courtney had been conducting a seance in Christie's garage with the garage door shut. They really thought they saw something and were scared out of their wits. I told the girls that I did not know what they had seen, but maybe it was a good idea not to have seances anymore. That night around midnight, Courtney woke up screaming, I saw Bloody Mary! Of course, this woke her brother, and the three of us spent the rest of the night in my bed. By the way, John, her analytical father, was out of town, and he was always out of town when these things seemed to happen. When Courtney was in her teens, we butted heads on a regular basis, usually over homework. Not surprisingly, she found herself at Saturday school to make up for what she hadn't handed in. I surmise that after all of these years, the movie, The Breakfast Club, was an experience she thought might be fun. I later found a questionnaire where she was asked, what will prevent you from returning to Saturday school in the future? She wrote, it is my responsibility to do my homework and hand it in. She never returned the questionnaire. In Courtney's early 20s, she told me that we had done the right thing by being strict with her. I couldn't believe what she was saying. John and I always felt like we were a day late and a dollar short when raising that girl. Courtney married Brian Slossman on June 27, 1997. Brian was the best thing that ever happened to Courtney. They both worked at Lifestar Ambulance, Courtney as an EMT, and Brian was a paramedic. He was in the Army Reserves and officially became an officer in 2000. They were expecting a baby in February 2001. In July, he was sent to OCS in Georgia. The next month, Courtney Baker Slossman 
died of a heart attack along with her baby. In the beginning, my grief was like waves crashing relentlessly into me, followed by a short period of calm before another would come and knock me down again. My body was literally in shock, a continuous feeling of pain and panic. I couldn't eat. On August 30th, three days after Courtney died, I began writing in a journal. I described the entire day of August 27th as if to document in writing what had really happened. My journaling helped me cope. Fortunately, I already had habits and routines in place that would be my safety net. Yoga, meditation, exercise, music, work, family, and friends. December 7, 2000, I wrote, Grief releases its hold on me. I think I have moved on until I'm yanked back into its iron grasp once again. When I wrote this, I had no idea about the feelings of pain, despair, and guilt. I was exhausted. The pain of my loss became my constant companion, always behind the scenes of everything I did. I had no idea then that my grief would become almost like a disability, one I learned, had to learn to live with. From 2003 on, I began writing poems. I had never expressed myself through poetry before, They flowed from me naturally. Instead of writing in prose to describe my feelings, I was often compelled to write in this form, continuing to chronicle my journey. Reflection at the cemetery. How did it come to this? My shadow on her tombstone, her name inscribed with her birth and death. How did we come to this? A blustery January day, much like long ago, when there was anticipation and hope. Snow falling, wind blowing. How did we come to this? Two middle-aged souls with nowhere to go, our stewardship over, our caring for her over. No worries now, no concern for her welfare or what she should be doing. Free. How did we come to this? We follow a car along the lanes of Arlington National Cemetery. It slowly makes its way past the white stones, paying respect to the soldiers and family members who once lived. Oh, God, no. The car's license plate. One son, 9-11. Those of us who have lost a child have to bear the unbearable, the unimaginable, the unspeakable. 
we have come to make our pilgrimage to a cold stone on a cold winter day. How did we come to this? By hope, by faith, by determination that her life would be nurtured as long as was needed. By denial that the worst case would ever happen. We are here, as so many other parents, paying tribute to affirm her existence, to lay the flowers, to speak her name yet once again to all those who will listen to remember the fun times, the incidental and everyday occurrences. We leave the stone, a testament that she lived. From my chapter on the outside looking in, it had been three years since Courtney had died, and I wrote the following poem that day. Another Anniversary. Losing a child means never mending the wound, filling the void, the abyss. That child who was your dream, your hope, your challenge, your pride. Today, we are voyeurs. We watch from the outside as other children grow, graduate, marry, and have children. We are the walking wounded. We are told... You've done so well. Getting out of bed and going to work is what they are talking about. There's no other choice for us. We have to partake in life as it comes. We need to enjoy the gifts that are given to us. We cannot have her back. In 2005, and it seemed like these would come up, although I would write in between the anniversaries, but it seemed like the poems really came up around the anniversary of her death. On August 26, 2005, I wrote to my friends, You never forget it. You never get over it. You never get beyond it. The death of a child continues, never ending. I wish there were words to convey my experience. Do I really want you to experience this? Alas, no words adequately describe the despair nor the depth of my loss. My recourse is to encourage my friends to see my sorrow to give me a pat, a hug, a kiss on the cheek. Listen to what I say with unconditional love and acceptance without an attempt to make me feel better. Please accept that I will never be the same person you used to know. This is my spiritual path. I see the world now with different eyes. I hear with different ears. My heart is patched and stitched to keep on beating. Nevertheless, it is broken. On June 28, 2006, 
I was listening to an anthropologist who was being interviewed on NPR, and she had lost her child. She had done research to find out whether there was a name for parents who had lost children. She found in her research that there is no name for us in any culture. I was astounded. I hadn't thought of that. When you lose your parents, she said, you are an orphan. When you lose your spouse, you are a widow or a widower. Widow comes from the Greek word empty. We're empty too, but that doesn't begin to describe us. No culture has been able to name parents who have lost children. It's too scary. It's unspeakable. Later, I wrote, you are not alone. Tears, memories, yearnings keep you connected. Even the pleasant memories of a special day or moment will give you some ease. You will go on. There are other children to care for, other commitments to meet, other events to take pleasure in. The years and milestones will go by. You will learn to live without them. You won't stop yearning for them, wondering what they would be like at any given age. You are changed forever with the loss of this child. No one knows except those of us with broken hearts. For six years after Courtney died, I wrote this on August 31st, stuck, the last day of the worst month of the year, the beginning of our seventh year without her, the horror, the endless despair. We are all very present with our loss, no easing up, no making peace with it. How can we? Courtney taught us so much. Yes, we had her for 28 years instead of 28 days, hours, minutes. It wasn't enough. Yes, we have plenty of stories that make us laugh, her humor, her do-your-own-thing philosophy, her creativity. Still, her absence is a huge void underscored when we least expect it. Are we stronger because we lost her? Are we able to even enjoy the littlest thing in life? Are we only voyeurs of others' happiness? I feel as though I'm waiting to exhale waiting for life to be meaningful, exciting, motivating again. I'm stuck. This next poem I wrote February 28, 2009. I saw you. I saw you swinging in the park. You, are, you appeared unbidden, 
out of the blue. You were swinging, your long red hair streaming behind you, swinging high, enjoying the balmy February day. I sat in my car at the stop sign watching this vision, so exuberant, so free. You turned and knew I saw you. I took a breath, wiped the tears away, and went on with my day. And I'd like to close with a poem that I wrote in the spring. Spring is bursting at the seams. Birds are singing nonstop, building nests. Camellias for Scythia are glorious. Tulips, daffodils, and hyacinths are singing the praises of spring. Another winter survived. Another winter enjoyed. Buried in snow, no living thing in sight. This spring is special. Rebirth has come yet again, singing its message over and over. A cycle of birth and death. Life goes on.